0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Joshua 23, Joshua 23. I'd like to go a little out of order in our series and go to the final words of Joshua today because I just felt like on the seventh anniversary Sunday that um, this would be a fitting passage. Next week, Lord willing, we'll drop back a chapter and study a great passage about the power of spiritual accountability um, before we start into our Christmas studies. But this text, Joshua 23... Uh, really provides a very simple and straightforward summary of all that this book has been about uh, and includes uh, both an awesome truth that I pray will really inspire us this morning and some challenges uh, that the Lord has for us. I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning. I'll be giving you some points in a couple minutes, but um, let's just kind of do a quick summary of chapter 14. We studied last week about Caleb Uh, up to chapter 23, really all that happens in those 10 chapters is that uh, God divides the land for the tribes, and the 12 tribes all claim their territory, very specific boundaries. If you read through those passages, you'll read a lot of names you can't pronounce, but they knew where they were, and God had established those areas for Israel. Um, And then once we get to chapter 23, each tribe now is actually occupying that new ground uh, that the Lord promised them and the Lord secured for them. And now Joshua is giving his last speech to the nation, uh, just as Moses did uh, at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, now we come to the end of Joshua, and Joshua is giving his last words. And it's kind of a reverse from what Moses does, and, and David does, and Solomon does. They, they give all the history of the nation first and then make their point. Uh, Joshua reverses it, he gets the point first, and then he recaps the history. So let's look at chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. It came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that he called for all Israel, for the elders and their heads and their judges and officers, and said to them, I'm old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I've cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord, your God, verse 5, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord, your God, has promised you. Now, look back at verse 1 for a minute because there's an important detail that we don't want to miss that after a long time, and I mean a long time, 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering, and a couple extra years attached on, that after all that time, they finally came to a place of trusting the Lord, they finally came to a place of obedience. And as soon as that happened, look at what verse 1 says. It says, their enemies were defeated, and the Lord gave them rest. When we trust the Lord, when we obey the Lord, when we live for the Lord, God will give us rest and i love that phrase because it says he gave them rest from their enemies on every side you know sometimes it feels like there's opposition on every side right sometimes we just feel like we're engulfed in spiritual warfare and we're surrounded and we can't get out of it And we've talked a lot over the last year about spiritual warfare and and about um the spiritual battles we're in and it's easy sometimes as we're doing that to get kind of overwhelmed but I want us to really remember verse 1 because we need to know and find strength in the fact that the Lord does provide times of rest and refreshing. He had new mercy waiting for us this morning. I was up very early and watched an absolutely gorgeous sunrise uh, with, with lines across the sky, and pink, and orange, and all kinds of beautiful colors, and then some vapor trails were coming up, some planes that had been out early, and I saw the sun, we're about a mile from the lake where we live, I, I could see the sun starting to peak up over where the lake was, and I just praised the Lord, I thought, you, you, you are here this morning, you are already watching us over the night, and there's new mercy that's fresh this morning. And the Spirit of God is sufficient for us, and He's strong for us. He indwells us. Then we have the teaching of the Word, and we have the power of time and presence, in His presence in prayer, and we get to worship, and we get to fellowship. I mean, everything's good. So if you're here in weakness this morning, if you're, if you're stuck, if you're really drained and really down, remember that God has times of rest. But make sure that you are utilizing the resources that He's given you. And when God gives rest, there are specific seasons at times where the Lord really provides extra rest so we can be encouraged and so we can restock, like the concept of the harbor. Many of you are new to the church. Maybe you don't know how we got our name. So let me give you 30 seconds on it. When we prayed about starting this church seven years ago, we prayed very hard and talked a long time about the name. What was the name going to be? And one night my wife and I were talking and she explained to me, I think the Lord just gave her word, the concept of the harbor, that the harbor is the place where you come in to get recharged physically and emotionally and you get fed and you learn more and you get fresh supplies and you're strengthened by others. Why? So you can go back out and do the work. And as we prayed and talked about this name for this church, that described what we believe the church should do. That when we come here during the week, when we come here on Sunday, this is the place to get restocked. It's the place to get fed. It's the place to get encouraged. It's the place to have fellowship. It's the place to be refreshed so we can go back out and do the work. And that, the Lord, many times will provide seasons where we just get fed, where we just have rest. I was so encouraged this summer when I said in a message, I said, now that we've bought the building, that's not the end. The work's just starting. And what's been so exciting is to see the response since then, people inviting friends, launching out into new ministry opportunities. We've started to go out in the neighborhood and hand out bags. We've got two people here today that are a result of just that and how they were looking for a church, and God provided. Listen, that's not because we put together bags with the Bible in them. That's because the Lord knew that they needed a place of refreshing. So as we settle in here, we've got to get this concept, and I think we do more than any time in the seven years. We've got to get this concept of being a ministry harbor. That's our purpose as a church. And the Lord has been gracious to us because I believe that as a church, we're in a time of rest. You know, we've had, as somebody mentioned, we've had some challenges over the seven years like any church does. We've done, dealt with external criticism. We've dealt with internal dissension. We've faced times of, of very serious spiritual warfare. About two years ago, those were very, very strong, but the Lord brought us through and he's given us a new time of refreshing and a new time of opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to face it again. It's going to be there all the time. But I don't know about you. It's nice to be able to celebrate today. It's nice to be able to just praise the Lord for his goodness and for bringing us through this moment. So, see that verse 1. The enemies were defeated. The Lord gave the rest. Next, see that Joshua then calls the people to understand and appreciate what they've seen. We're a very visual generation, and we need to be looking for and and literally recording all the different ways in which the Lord blesses us and encourages us and teaches us about a sufficiency. I thought what we're able to do this morning, and Adam gave me that idea about 11 o'clock last night, I thought that idea of having just people come up and testify what the Lord's done that's a beautiful visual. I will never forget that. I'll never forget our middle schoolers coming up boldly. I'm just going to go up and talk. I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. And how God's called people to ministry and how God's developed people spiritually and how God's rescued people literally from death. That's the work of the Lord. And we need to constantly be chronicling that. So look at what Joshua says in verse 3. You have seen, you have seen all that the Lord has done in your midst for them, defeating the other nations. You've seen it. And the Lord, I love this phrase, verse 3, underline it if you write your Bible. The Lord has been fighting for you. What an amazing concept it is. Don't don't glide past that. Just just stay on those those seven or eight words. The Lord has been fighting for you. For decades, Israel was rebellious. For decades, they were defiant and faithless and insubordinate. And here's what God did. He stayed faithful. They, They cursed him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to overthrow Moses. They built a golden calf. And you know what God did? He stayed faithful. He kept with the plan, and they wandered and grumbled and griped and complained and were bitter and were dying every day. And you know what God did? He stayed faithful, just leading them to the promised land, leading them to the promised land. And once they got there, he didn't say, all right, you're here. Now you're on your own. He said, no, I'm going to take your enemies out. I'm going to give you victory so you can occupy the land and take new ground. And that wasn't just an exchange. He didn't just say, hey, Canaanites, you go over to Turkey and you just hang out there because my people need this land. He destroyed his enemies because that's what God does with those who oppose him. He gets them out of the way. And that's an important spiritual principle for us. When there's an enemy of the faith, I'm not talking about people now, I'm talking about sin. Don't let it stick around. Don't let it influence you. And certainly don't align with it and make covenants with it, as we saw. But this phrase, look at verse 3, really captures the essence of what the Lord had done. He had literally fought their battles. In Exodus 15, when they came out of Egypt, the people all sang, the Lord is a warrior. Is that how we view God? God. You know, we talk about Jesus and he was lowly and he was meek and he was our friend and and he was, you know, it's just kind of, we always have this soft picture of Jesus kind of doe-eyed and, you know, with his head at an angle. And, you know, that's that's maybe somewhat true. But God is a warrior. God fights our battles. And I want you to recognize, and I want to recognize this morning, that there's power with God. That he has authority as God. That Christ is the conqueror of sin. He didn't just mush it to the side. He didn't go to the cross and just say, okay, sin, go over here. Just kind of be nice, right? What did he do? He took my sins and your sins, and they were nailed to the cross, and he conquered it. He defeated it once and for all, and he still fights for us. I love the words that we sang earlier. The Lord our God is mighty in battle. We are not afraid. His hand upholds us through our trials. Our God is strong to save. How many are glad that's true today? That our God is strong to save. Now, with that in mind, what are your battles today? What are you fighting today? One of my favorite accounts in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 5, when the Philistines were attacking Israel, And David prayed to the Lord twice and said, Lord, are you going to give us victory? And the Lord did twice, thoroughly. He gave victory over the Philistines. And David named that place Baal Perazim, which means breakthrough. Breakthrough. What do you need the Lord to conquer in your life this morning? What what breakthrough do you need in your life? And if so, if you're saying, oh, man, Paul, there are so many things that I need a breakthrough, and there's so many things I need the Lord to conquer, then are you trusting him completely to do it? Because if you're still holding on with one hand, well, Lord, I want you to give me victory and help me to conquer the sin, but I'd still like to participate in it just a little bit. I'd still like to have just part of it, and I want to have a breakthrough, but Lord, I'm going to hold back just a little bit. You do the breaking through, and I'll kind of go through when I'm ready. That's not how it works. We have to trust him completely because he says, I'm going to fight for you. The battle belongs to me. Nothing is impossible to me, and as the choir just sang, I'll be a shield around you. I'll be the one who lifts your head. So Joshua 23.3, look back at it. It's a powerful truth that we can walk in confidence and assurance and strength today because God keeps his promises. Politicians, they don't keep their promises. Entertainers, clueless. Athletes, stuck on themselves. But God keeps his promises. So how awesome is it that we can approach whatever battle we're going to face tomorrow knowing that God's already got mercy prepared and that he's going ahead of us to give us victory when we trust in him. And then on top of that, look at verse 5. He gave them full possession of the land just as he promised. You know, God's thorough, isn't he? He doesn't give partially. Imagine if salvation through Christ wasn't complete it it wasn't assured there was still some question we know God's sufficient and and Christ died for our sins and rose again but but we still got to keep kind of earning our way and getting some favor and kind of kind of gathering in some things or imagine he said I'm going to give you a new nature but I'm going to only make part of it holy you're going to have to conquer some things on your own you're, you're going to have to work against the pervasiveness of sin on your own. You know, even with being fully, completely changed and filled by the Spirit, we still struggle with sin. Imagine if God said, I'll only do it part way. Or imagine if we only received a small portion of the Spirit. He kind of influenced us and helped us, but, but we really kind of had to fight our own battles. We had to try to come up with some strength and courage and, and discipline and conviction because God only gave us part of his spirit. Nothing the Lord does for us is partway. Nothing the Lord does for us is half-hearted. He bought us with the price of Jesus's blood, and he has fully invested in us for all eternity. And to prove it, he sealed it with his Holy Spirit. So not only does he fight for us, not only does he win our battles, but he fully equips us to endure and to thrive in the middle of conflict. Because we're going to still face it head on, right? You're going to still feel it every day. Just because God's won the battle doesn't mean now we're just going to be passive observers and kind of sit back and watch and, oh, that's good, Lord, you take care of it. We got our feet up, we're drinking an iced tea and watching TV. Yeah, Lord, take care of it. I'd like another bonbon, please. The Lord's taking care of my battles. It's not how it works. We're fully engaged in the middle of the battle. We just have confidence that our Savior is the winner. God has equipped us, and he gives us some very specific conditions to follow so that we're in the center of his will and so that we're strong to withstand what we face, and so we don't assume and don't abuse his kindness. Listen now. The Lord is not going to be mocked. He's not going to save us and then watch us just be frivolous with his salvation. He's not going to save us and just watch us sit back and take advantage of him. He says, you have a responsibility to me to be faithful because I own you. We don't like talking that way, do we? I'm owned by Christ. Paul Rhodes, 53 years old, saved in 1974. In 1974, I was bought by Jesus. He owns me. I don't own my life. My life's not mine. See, that's the lie of the enemy. Well, if you reject Jesus, you own your life. No, the devil owns you. Either the devil owns you or Jesus owns you. It's only two choices. You own yourself. So people wander around the world this morning. Well, I'm my own man. I'm self-sufficient. I do my own thing. Nope, you're controlled by the devil. And then when we give our lives to Jesus, he says, I bought you. You're mine. I own you. But I'm not going to treat you like a slave. I'm going to treat you like a child. You're a co-inheritor with Christ. You're mine. You're precious to me. When you call on my name, it's a savor to me. When you praise my name, I get joy in my heart because I see my children praising me. When you trust in me, that's the best thing ever. But he gives us conditions. I want to talk about them really quick. Look at verse 6. There are five simple directives here for Israel. And they're every bit as applicable for us today. And if you're taking notes, these these five distinctive commands the Lord gives us, they're right here in the text we're about to read. I'm not going to give you any special points. I'm just going to essentially read the verse because they're very, very simple. But Listen, if we're not 100% faithful to them, then we've got to get our focus on them every single second of the day. Let's look at verse 6. But be very firm then to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left so you will not associate with these nations these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. You are to cling to the Lord your God, as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you. There it is again, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and you intermarry with them, so you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Five distinctive commands. right in the text, start in verse 6. He says, be very firm. Be very firm. The word means courageous and resolute. Be very firm to keep and do. What's the next word? Tell me. All. Tell me again. All. Everybody say it one more time. All. Keep and do all that is written in his word. Do not go to the right. Do not go to the left. What does that mean? It means the word is our command and it's not subjective or negotiable. The Bible you and I hold in our hands this morning is the Word of God, and it is not open to our personal bias. It is not subjective. It's not take or pick what I want. It's not, well, I don't need this. That's Old Testament. That doesn't apply to me. Nope. The whole world is the whole counsel of God, and all of it is is for our instruction and training righteousness. All Scripture is inspired by God. Not just, well, I like Romans, and Philippians makes me feel good. don't really understand Hebrews, but I do love 1 John, and the Psalms. I always run to the Psalms, but I don't really understand 1 Chronicles. No, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is for us, and if we take that mindset As we read it and we commit ourselves in a fresh way to be daily students of the Word, it would change us. As I've been back on the Wheaton campus, I graduated from Wheaton in 1986, and I've been now back on the campus this fall. It's been fun. I feel very old. My mind says I could still be in the dorm. My body says no. But as I've walked around with my son and just enjoyed watching him enjoy the campus, I've said a couple times, maybe out loud, maybe muttering to myself, I don't know, people think I'm crazy when I walk around campus, but it's fine, I'm good, because I'm an alumni, and I have a degree on my wall. And they can't take it away from me, no matter how bad my grades were. But I've said a couple times, I wish I could come back here and do it again, knowing what I know now. Because I'd study a lot more seriously. How many have thought or said that about school? You know what? That book you're holding in your hands, the opportunity to do just that. Nobody wants me going back to Wheaton College. I probably wouldn't be a good student now as I wasn't then. Praise God that He got me to seminary. Literally. I'm not being frivolous. Literally. But how long have you been saved? How long have you owned a Bible? Knowing what you know now saved 42 years. Knowing what I know now, it's time for me to be a student again. It's time for me to go back to the Word and see it with fresh eyes and say, Joshua's farewell address, what does that mean for me? What's the application for me? Lord, how can you teach me out of that? Because I'm 43 years in your Word. I'm 42 years, your child. I'm 53 years old. Teach me. Teach me because I think I've got a little bit more wisdom than I had when I got saved at 10. I think I'm a little bit smarter. I've had a little bit more experience. So now I want to be a fresh student of the word. Second, verse 7. He says, don't associate with or serve other nations or bow down to their gods. Listen carefully. The concept here is not to have no contact with people who don't love the Lord. It is to not be influenced by them in terms of conviction. We absolutely, definitely need to have conversations, carefully build relationships, and share the good news of the gospel with them because that was Jesus' primary job for us when he went back to heaven and sent the Spirit of God to empower us. But here's the thing. We need to be the influencers, not the influencees. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. You and I, believer, we need to be influencers, not be influenced. And the problem, I think, with the American church, we've talked about many times, I don't get into it, is we're so influenced by the world because we want to reach the world by being like the world. That doesn't work. We need to be influencing the world and speaking the truth in love. So, what's the scope of your spiritual influence today? Is it a plus or a minus? Do you influence and persuade unsaved people more than they influence and persuade you? Where are you on the ledger? Is it a plus or a minus? And if it's a minus, verse seven's for you. Number 3, verse 8. First, he said, be firm to keep all that's written in the word. Second, don't associate with other nations or bad their gods. Third, cling to the Lord. Cling to the Lord. I love that word. It means to cleave to. I don't use the word cleave a lot every day. I rarely text, you need to cleave. Cleave is not really a word that, that is in our repertoire, but it has two meanings. To stick and adhere to. I thought of super glue to stick and adhere to, and to become very strongly involved and emotionally attached to. So, cling, cleave to the Lord. Stick to Him. Be emotionally invested and fully attached to Him. So what's the Lord's instruction? It's to be inseparable from me. No room, no gap, no separation. Physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, you are attached to me. So attached that anybody can't see you without seeing Christ. That, that, that they can't look at Paul Rhodes, and this is not true today, but they can't look at Paul Rhodes and not say, that person's been with Jesus Christ every minute of every day, like in uh, Acts 4.13. They, they've been with Christ. That Harbor Rock Church, oh, they've been with Christ. I walked in that place, and it was, the, the Lord was there. The Lord was, I mean, it, the first time I walked in Brooklyn Tabernacle, I'll never forget it. I started weeping. I started weeping. Walked off the street in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn, and, and, and walked in and just, just started crying. I'm like, I don't regularly cry. But the presence of the Lord was so overwhelming that I couldn't stop. Harbor Rock Tabernacle needs to be that. Your life needs to be that my life needs to be that is it easy nope is it necessary there's no other option and how many know the lord's worthy of it and just as another motivator look back at verses 9 and 10 the lord says don't forget i fought for you and i'm fighting for you and i'm driving out your enemies so if you're wavering about clinging to me if you got something or someone that's pulling you away just look at the cross And just remember that Jesus not only fought for us, he actually took our place. Fourth, verse 11. Take diligent heed to love the Lord. Take diligent heed to love the Lord. Literal meaning is to take abundant protection. The word actually means a watchman on a tower to guard your heart. Listen now. So you will continue to love the Lord We know from marriages and relationships that there are definitely things we can do to reduce feelings of love, right? Married couples, there are things you can do to reduce your spouse going, I love you so much, like yelling at them or disrespecting them or filling your mind with unholy images, or being selfish, or being unsacrificial, or being careless about what you allow, all the way up to being unfaithful. If you're unfaithful, your spouse is not going to go, I love you so much. The same applies to our relationship with the Lord. So we have to stand guard We have to be a watchman. We have to walk circumspectly, looking all around us, watching, where's the enemy right now? Where are his demons? I'm watching. I'm looking for how I'm going to get attacked, and I've got my full armor on, and I'm ready, and the Lord's going to take care of me. He's going to fight the battle, so I'm going to depend on him because I don't want to get damaged, and I don't want my love for the Lord to get damaged. See, so much of the time in spiritual warfare, we think, well, I just don't want to get hurt. And this verse, verse 11, says, in spiritual warfare, make sure you don't hurt your love for the Lord. Make sure it's outward, not just inward. And then last thought, verse 12. Know that if you go back, know that if you go back and cling to the wrong things, they will be a trap. Know that if you go back and cling to the wrong things, they will be a trap. Now, Israel certainly knew that from their history, and they had just witnessed it with Achan. You and I can draw our own examples from our own lives where we've retreated spiritually, spiritually, times when you've been drawn back into sin and drawn back into temptation and it pulled you away from the Lord and it was a snare to your maturity, maybe very seriously. Maybe you're in one of those today. The problem is the longer you stay in the trap, the more the spiritual wound gets infected. So if you're stuck in sin, well, Paul, I just, I, I can't break free. Okay, well, have you tried? Well, kind of, and I, I don't really want to because it's so much a part of my life, and I kind of enjoy it, but I know it's wrong. And Listen, the longer you have your foot caught in that trap, the more infected your heart's going to be until finally you're going to be disabled. Finally, you're not going to be able to break free, and you're not going to be able to live in freedom and to walk away. So if you're still clinging to those wrong things this morning, I want to encourage you, that's not only going to damage you, but look back at the text 12 and 13. It says the Lord is then going to remove his help. Fine. You want to live in the trap? You want to have that wound that keeps getting infected and your heart now is starting to be infected by it? You want to live that way? I'm gracious, but you don't want my grace. So just cling to it. Just hang on to it and look at it every day. Because I'm going to pull back my fighting. I'm not going to be mocked by you. Once you want to be released, I'll set you free. I'll heal that wound, and you can cling to me. And when you cling to me, you'll live in abundance. When you cling to me, you'll live in contentment. So we're done. There are some very significant decisions we have to make. We study them all the time. We talk about them all the time. But maybe our attitude, listen now, maybe our attitude toward actual action is a little passive or unresponsive. We, we, we kind of agree in theory, but when it comes to implementing them every day, we're not all in. Joshua had watched Israel repeat that pattern for 50 years. So he sums it up. Sorry, I told you to close your Bibles. Open your Bible, Joshua 24. Got to read two more verses. Joshua sums up everything in two verses. Joshua 24:14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served would be on the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, tell me the last words. We will serve the Lord. Joshua says you have two options. Clear, clear-cut Principles, clear cut choices here. The best option, serve the Lord, fear the Lord, trust Him, and serve Him in sincerity and truth. He's proven Himself. He's shown He alone is worthy of trust. He's eliminated any doubt that He's God. He's defeated your enemies. He's given you the land that He promised. You're living in victory right now where you sit. This is no longer a point of debate. You know the truth. So, Are you going to fear him and live for him? Or the other option, if you find that disagreeable, uh, uh, Joshua, I believe here, is a little sarcastic. Oh, if you find that's not good enough for you, then go and serve the other gods that God defeated. Go and serve the gods of the Amorites whose land you're living in because God defeated them. Go back to Egypt and serve the gods that were holding you captive until God sent 10 plagues and Moses went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, Get out. And then you got to the Red Sea and you were like, Oh, what are we going to do? And God said, Here, I'm going to open up the water and you walk through on dry ground and watch the the Egyptians drown. You want to serve their gods or do you want to serve me? The options are clear. Sin brags about its payoffs, but it never delivers because it's a losing position. So Joshua says, Choose. Choose which one? You're going to serve the Lord? Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Is that your declaration today? Uh, Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This church, Harbor at Tabernacle, we're going to serve the Lord. That's not a question. It's not a doubt. We're not going to change. If you want us to change, find another church. We're not going to change. This church is going to serve the Lord. Because based on all we've seen God do through Christ, and based on the seven years of his sufficiency, we have to know, don't we, church, that the Lord's been fighting for us. We have to know that he's been at work. So are we going to take diligent heed to love him and serve him, or are we going to go back and cling to the wrong gods? That's the choice. Today's the day to make it. Let's close our eyes.